Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Hey, listeners, Sourdough here. Today's episode is a special edition because we're featuring one of the many experts speaking at the Not Real Art Creators Conference here in L.A. on March 16th. Our guest today is Ilya Kirshnerski. He's an intellectual property attorney in New York City, and his firm is called KG Law. And Ilya has helped lots of artists over the years, including Roan, Gaia, Olek, Momo, A-Hole Sniffs Glue, Bo Stanton, Woes, Caritos, Distort, I could go on. In today's episode, Ilya and I talk about copyrights and trademarks and everything in between, but it's just a small taste, sample, and primer to what you'll hear at our conference on March 16th. So if you haven't already bought your tickets, be sure to get them today at notrealart.com. Now, let's start the show. Hello, this is Siri, and you're listening to my favorite podcast, Not Real Art. I live for this shit because it's totally lit. Hila Kirshnerski, welcome. Thank you. Did I get that right? You have Ilya. a very exotic name, my friend. <laughs> uh, it's Ilya Kushnerski. Uh, you came about as close as anyone does. Because well, the, first the Kush, the K U S H, it's like like for we, us weed smokers, it's like Kush, you know. But it sounds like there's an R in there, but the R is. I think the ski is what I've thought about this way too much in my life. I think the ski is what throws people off because if it was just Kushner, I think people don't have a problem with that. You know, there's Tony Kushner; they've, they've seen Kushner. The ski, you would think, is just Kushner ski, right? But for some reason, that ski, it causes a mental block for a lot of people where they just kind of stare at the name and they don't even know where to start, even though it's phonetic. So having an exotic name, I'm sure you've grappled with people struggling with it over the years. I mean, is that a pet peeve for you or do you just sort of roll with it now? No, you know, some people can get really uptight about it. Not at all. Yeah, I know. I think the main thing I've taken away from it is I think empathy for other people who have the same issue, right? So I always try to make sure that I'm getting someone's name right and and saying it the way that they want it said and not just the way that, you know, I want to say it. And, you know, that's not always the easiest because you have to be able to roll your tongue and do all kinds of things. And, you know, and, and I try, but I think that's the main thing. Right. You know? Well, it's funny because, I mean, I so don't have an exotic name, but you would be surprised at how my whole life people have got it wrong because nine times out of 10 out of the gate, they'll say Scott Powers. And of course, listeners on the show know me as Sourdough. They don't necessarily know my full name, but not that it matters. I'm just saying it's so funny because my whole life, like I, for me, like it just it was never a big deal. It's like, okay, Powers, I've been called worse. Like, you know, it's power, whatever. You just have a porn star name, yeah. right? Scott Power. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Somebody once said that, I guess to get your porn star name, you take the the name of the street you grew up on and combine it with the name of your first pet or something. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mine would have been Stone Muffin anyway, or Muffin Stone or whatever. I don't even know. But Ela, it's so good to meet you, man. Thank you for sitting down to chat. I mean, it's exciting. You know, our mutual friend, Logan Hicks, the amazing artist, uh, brought us together. We have an exciting conference coming up. You are a speaker. That's right. Uh, Logan is a speaker. 
and the Not Real Art Conference on March 16th. Not real. What does that mean, Hila? Not Real Art. What does that mean to you? You know, I, I think the way I read it is I think a lot of artists are, are probably used to, you know, a lot of working artists are probably uh, who, who aren't necessarily part of what we think of as the art world, right? are probably used to f- having that sort of feeling of marginalization or alienation from something, uh, right? Because I think, you know, the vast majority of people don't really interact with the art world, but they have a conception of what it is, right? And that's, you know, that's highbrow, you know, museum openings, that sort of thing, right? Like million dollar art pieces and things like that. And the reality is, I think that, you know, 99 0.9% of artists live outside of that conception, right? And go about their days trying to make a living through through their art and their craft and their self-expression. And, and I think they get that a lot of times sort of the reaction to what they do is like, oh, well, that's, that's not real art, right? Because it's not, you know, it's not the coon's dog or it's not whatever that like really narrow perception of, that people have of what art is. Yes. Yeah, I know. It's funny because when I talk to artists and I tell them about not real art, they laugh like they get the joke and the satire immediately because they've struggled as, you know, because it feels like and I've talked I was talking to this one artist, but he said every new art movement throughout history was sort of regarded by the intelligentsia or the gatekeepers of the day. Well, that's not authentic. That's not real. That's not real art. And so on the artist side, artists get the joke. But it's funny when I've talked to, you know, other folks in the art world, whether they be gallerists or dealers or collectors or whatever, they just look at me with the say, what what does that even mean? What do you mean not real art? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's actually funny. I think, you know, how we sort of view legitimacy, right, of different mediums. And, you know, when movies came out first, right, that was the, you know, it was, oh, this is, this is lowbrow, this isn't real art. Um, when novels uh, were first being written, uh, there was the same, you know, same conception. And when theater came out, and these are all things that we think of as, as highbrow now, right? Like, this is the stuff that, you know, the New York Times will review or, or that, you know, people with money go to see or, or do. And, you know, comic books obviously had had a legitimacy crisis, you know, which was actually kind of a moral panic. And that could, a lot of times these things kind of overlap, right? And yeah, it's, it's funny that, you know, if you don't really think about the history of these things and, and you don't see how much of a cycle, you know, this legitimacy question is, it's very, you know, it's very easy to fall back into that, that mindset that a lot of people have. For sure. And, you know, I think the sort of un- underlying implication of the confusion around this gets to like, well, how can it be real art if it's not expensive? You know, because, you know, you were talking about the earlier about the kind of the blue chip uh, kind of fine art world, which is really now an asset class. Right. I mean, you know, like it's a way of launder, uh, of no, la- right. laundering it's, it's your money. money. It's a, it's a <laughs> money laundering operation. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. On a global scale. On a global scale. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, we're here to hack the system a bit. You know, yeah, absolutely, hundred percent, hundred percent. I'm so grateful, Ila, that you are coming to the conference and talking and bringing your expertise and your passion for helping artists. 
in their careers, you know, from a legal perspective. I mean, you're an attorney, right? You're an intellectual property attorney. I don't know if they call it art law as well or whatever, like how art law differentiates necessarily from intellectual property. But this is your, not just your passion, but your profession. Tell us a little bit about KG Law and your firm, you know, the history, the roots, how you've come to be here today. Yeah. So I have a small law firm in uh, Manhattan in New York City called KG Law. I'm the K and my partner, Andrew Gerber, is the G. And we started this firm about seven years ago. And uh, the main thing that we do, you know, we do we do a lot of different things, but uh, we pretty much work entirely with artists, creative professionals, and creative agencies. Um, we work with some tech companies as well, some sort of small tech startups. But the, the vast majority of what we do is on the creative side. And like you said, it's a lot of intellectual property or IP work. And one of the, we do a number of different things depending on, you know, what clients need. So, you know, if, if an artist is doing a deal, you know, we'll, we'll help them with that. But the majority of what we do actually is we help enforce artists' copyrights. So we do a lot of copyright infringement work. So somebody has a mural and, you know, I'm not going to name names here, right? But if a big brand decides, hey, you know, what would be cool? What would appeal to, can you I, know, well, Hold on. Can I yeah. name the brand? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. I'll just do a no comment after. Okay. Uh, right, good, but, good to know I have that license, H&M. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, they're, they're definitely one, but there's a lot of less publicized cases where, you know, that are, they're at least as egregious as that. That one, that one just caught fire a little bit, but, you know, we've handled dozens of these types of cases at this point. But, you know, if a brand decides, you know, what, here's, you know, what would, what would appeal to, you know, to our target demographic would be to, you know, pose these models in front of this mural, right, to sell, you know, clothes or cars or shoes or whatever, really. That happens a lot uh, because I'm guessing that, you know, the ad research, the market research shows that uh, people like street art, that stuff sells. So that tends to happen a lot. Plus, you know, obviously the murals are out in the street, you know. It's, well, isn't that get to, doesn't, isn't that the kind of the core of the, of the misunderstanding? Like there's, in, in terms of lazy thinking, it's like, it's like, oh, it's on the street. It's public. Like it's public domain. Like I can shoot in front of this mural because this artist gave this to this block. And so therefore I don't have to worry about getting rights or getting money or, you know, to the artist. Yeah, that is absolutely the misconception. And it really gets to this sort of metaphysical differentiation between, you know, what is intellectual property really? You know, it's not a tangible right. It's, um, you know, it's the right to control how your work is used. So just because somebody paid you to do a commission or paid you to do a work doesn't mean that they necessarily are buying away from you all of your IP rights. If I paint, you know, if I make a painting and I sell you that painting, then there are things you can do with it. And that's considered fair use, right? Because you've bought the actual painting from me. So you can display it, you can take pictures of it, you can, you know, you can put it on your Instagram, hey, you know, here, this is in my house. You know, you can't make copies of it and resell it. You can't sell prints of it, you know. Um, so there's differences, right, between what you can do with the actual physical thing and then what you can do with sort of the meta rights that exist within that thing. And that's that's what intellectual property law is really all about. So, yeah, I mean, you touched on a lot of really, you know, interesting things. And I know a lot of artists who have grappled with this, you know, in L.A., you know, some of those cases are catching fire. I mean, what do you do you think... Um, some of these cases catch fire because of social media now, like, 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 or just, or some cases just more precedent setting than others. 
So precedent is an interesting word there because as a, you know, as a term of art, like in the legal world, that means, you know, there isn't really precedent unless, you know, you take a case all the way through and you get, you know, a judge to, to make thinking, a decision. By the way, it. not to yeah. know, but I'm thinking of like five points right now. Like, right. you know, you know what I mean? Like, sure. Yeah. yeah. There's definitely precedent in the five points decision because that's actually made its way through the courts to some extent. The H&M, sorry, is it Revoke? Revoke? Revoke. Or oh, Revoke. Revoke. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Shout um, out Revoke. That, so that's, to my knowledge, not a case that, you know, and that's not a case that I was involved in, but that, to my knowledge, that's not a case that actually made its way through court systems. So, but there's this sort of, I think, precedent that's set in the more of the court of public opinion and the sort of norms that exist around this sort of thing. I think that case caught fire for a couple of reasons, one of which was that H&M had absolutely the, the most boneheaded, tone-deaf response possible to it, which was, you know, we've gotten this response from, um, from infringers in the past, too, which is, you know, you got to think about it this way. Like, these are large corporations that exist in a particular reality. None of these people that work at these companies know any street artists, you know, uh, their liaison to street art, their, their sort of entree into that world is usually their ad agencies that they work with, but nobody at H and M knows or cares about any of this stuff, I would think. And so certainly their lawyers don't. And so they thought, oh, you know, we're going to fight against this because this was an illegal piece, right? Like this wasn't, this wasn't a commission, you know, this was, and they didn't have a permit. He didn't have the permit, right? He wasn't, you know, and there's nothing in copyright law that says that you you know copyright only attaches to pieces that go through the right agencies to get you know no it doesn't it's completely silent on that copyright is completely separate from you know whether a piece was went through the right channels you know the cop- copyright act says that as soon as you you know in the language of the copyright act as soon as you fix the work in a tangible medium then copyright attaches to it and so not only did they have a really bad argument legally, but it's the sort of thing that I think in the public consciousness is just, it's just outrageous, you know, and I think people were were rightly outraged by that, you know, that, oh, instead of resolving this thing, you're going to accuse this guy of, of creating illegal art and saying that he doesn't have any rights in it because it's illegal. I mean, it was just, just a really tone deaf response. Yeah, well, it's it's fascinating as well, right? Because somehow on some level, well, you know, so illegality somehow negates copyright or you're getting back to our earlier conversation about not real art. It's like, oh, graffiti is not art because it's vandalism. Right. 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 Yeah. Recycling like 80s and 90s arguments. Right. Like, again, coming back to moral panics. Right. It's ridiculous. So, I mean, how do artists afford you, Hila? I mean, I mean, this is a fancy office. You're in the (laughs) the 500th floor of uh, the Empire State Building. Uh, No, these are these are this is a very uh, well appointed, humble uh, office, very functional. I like like it, you know, talk about that. How do you work with artists who are notoriously, you know, they're struggling like any small business? Yeah. So first, I just do want to correct the record because for my New Yorkers uh, who might listen to this, we're definitely not in the Empire State Building. In fact, I don't, I don't go above 23rd Street. <laughs> well, by really. the way, there's not 500 floors in the Empire State Building. Right. Like that was supposed to be that, like a but, clever joke, but no one, I, I mean, but I'm glad you're pointing this out. Well, that's sure. <laughs> the floor really doesn't matter. But I think, you know, New Yorkers are very territorial. Where, where are you in New York? We're in Union Square. Union Square yeah. people. We're in Union Square. The way that we're able to work with artists is that we have completely built our business model around the realities of being an artist. So, 
if, you know, if somebody comes to us and they're, you know, their creative agency and they have 20, you know, they're 20 people on staff and they're doing deals and things, then we charge them the regular way that we would, you know, a profitable company. If an artist comes to us, you know, I've seen artist tax returns, you know, I know you know, I, I've never been an artist myself, but I know the real, the economic reality of what it means to be an artist. And I know that if an artist gets, you know, if an artist is lucky enough to get, you know, like a $20,000 commission, that might be the only work that they have, the only paying work they might have for four or six months. Right. right. So, yes. you know, so you can't just sort of look at it as, oh, you know, this person's getting these large commissions, they must be rolling in money. That's not the reality. So we have a completely different business model that that we use with artists, which is generally most artists don't pay us anything. And if we have a case that we can bring and we think that we think that we can get money for the artist because some of their rights were violated, you know, in, through copyright infringement or, or whatever, then we would rather have the, you know, the infringing party pay our bills than, than the artist. Because, you know, you can say that you're out here helping artists, but if you're cutting into their paychecks, you know, and, and lawyers aren't cheap then are you really helping them on balance, right? Like if, you know, if you're getting them the result they want, but then they have to pay your bill and that takes, you know, that takes all the money away that, that you just got for them, like, have you really helped them? And so our model really takes that into account, you know, and, and obviously that means that if somebody doesn't have a good case and we don't think that, you know, we don't think that we can do anything for them, we will tell them that, you know, and and we just won't take the case rather than, you know, have them pay for something that uh, right that, that we're not going to be able to get them a result. So what are the th- you know I'm just making up numbers here, but I mean what are the three things that artists listening today can do on their own to protect themselves uh, smartly to work smartly to protect themselves against you know infringement and other you know related matters so they don't end up having to hire you in the first place right i mean how can artists and this gets to maybe some of the things that we'll talk about even at the conference you know like what are some of those very sort of fundamental things that artists can do to protect themselves against impropriety yes that's a good question i think one issue i would have with the framing of that is that I don't know that there's anything you can really do to prevent these things from happening, but you can put yourself in a position where if they do happen to you, you're going to be in a much better place to handle them. Whether that means, you know, deal with them cheaply, deal with them effectively, make money from them, that sort of thing. You know, the reality is everybody's work gets infringed from artists who are just starting out. And, you know, we've had cases where, I've literally had cases where an artist hadn't even released the work yet and it had already gotten infringed in China and then mass produced in the US. And it's like, how did this company even get this? Like this wasn't even publicly Wow, that's available. some uh, James Bond uh, <laughs> high high yeah. crimes and, and whatnot. Uh, so, yeah. you know, it happens from, from that very early stage of, you know, artists who are just starting out to the absolute highest levels. You know, everybody gets infringed. You know, we've had cases where multiple, like lots of muralists had been infringed in the same case. And we ended up representing some of them, but not others because they're just at a level where we don't really even have access to them, you know, like a shepherd fairy or somebody like that. You know, and I figure, oh, he's probably got a lawyer that he likes already. But, you know, they were infringed just along, just, you know, just as much as anybody else. So I don't know that there's a way to prevent this stuff from happening. 
thing. And and actually, I think that's one of my pieces of advice there is that it's probably going to happen to you. You know, I think one way to almost measure success is kind of the frequency with which it does happen to you and to not really get stressed out when it does. I have I have some clients who get very, very stressed when an infringement happens and they think, you know, that this is going to end their career somehow that it's going to completely, you know, dry up the market for their work. And I don't think it really does. I think there's ways to really contain that sort of damage. Well, I was just, I was going to ask. So, I, and again, the part of why I'm so grateful that you're at the conference and we're talking today, because I feel like there's a lot of myths out there, right? About, you know, what people might do to protect themselves or whatever, or trademark something, copyright something, what have you. And I, and I heard something a long time ago. I don't know if it's true. I'm asking you now, but it has to do, I guess, with damages and punitive damages. Yeah. Like, like if you, and, and again, this might be wrong, but what I remember hearing was like, yes, there's an inherent copyright yeah. and yes, you can fight that, but your damages are limited because you haven't filed a copyright on that image. And for what, 30 bucks or whatever, if you fill out the copyright and put, put apply for that copyright, then suddenly you're upside, you know, if, if you have to sue and there's damages, you you can sue for damages because you took that step versus if you had not. Yeah, Is that no, accurate? Absolutely. And that's that's sort of where I was going with this. So even though you can't prevent infringement from happening, you can put yourself in a much better position to deal with it. And the number one, absolutely number one with a bullet thing that you can do is to register your copyrights. That is, you know, if you take one thing away, and this is, you know, anytime I do a talk with artists, that's the number one thing I talk about. And I have some clients that I've sort of managed to beat it into them at this point, having, you know, worked with them for so many years, and others who definitely are still resistant to it because, at the end of the day, it's paperwork, it's boring, it's somewhat confusing because it's a bureaucratic process, and it's actually pretty easy to do it wrong um, because when you go onto the Copyright Office uh, website to register your work, you see all these different categories that don't necessarily apply to the type of work you do. You know, it can be a little bit difficult because it's it's a little bit of an antiquated system. So, you know, it, it can be somewhat daunting for people, but is the number one thing to take the time and the effort and the energy to learn that website and to make registering your works a part of your process. You know, when you come out with a new piece, mark it down, register it within a month of, you know, of making the piece and try to get into a rhythm of doing that because yes, it is the best thing you could do. And why is it the best thing? Because exactly like you said, you know, people have this misconception, it's a partial misconception, but it's effectively a misconception that you know, your art is copyrighted from the moment you create it. And that's true, but it's also toothless because copyright law is basically like a two-class or two-cast system. There's registered works and there's unregistered works. And if your work is registered, you know, it's like flying in first class and unregistered works, that's like flying coach with no leg room, right? And, and you're, in, you're in the middle seat. The damages are completely different. You know, the damages frameworks are completely different. The leverage you have is completely different. You know, if your work is registered, one of the main things is you can recover your attorney's fees from the other side. So, you know, that's a huge leverage point because why would they fight it if not only are they paying for their lawyers, but they know that by the end of it, you know, you're just racking up your own legal fees that they're going to have to pay you for. So we absolutely settle cases much, much faster and for much larger amounts of money when the works are registered. That is the number one thing that artists should do. Right, right. 
Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's interesting how you said that something about making it a part of your process, right? I mean, it's like post-production processes, <laughs> you know, it's like, right. it's like, okay, I mean, you made the piece now, you know, do this. So just to kind of, you know, bring it back down to earth a little bit. I mean, so, you know, let's say I'm, you know, a street artist, sourdough. Um, so I'm a famous street artist. I write I've sourdough. You, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I've created this amazing piece. People are loving it. Of course, it's illegal. I didn't have a permit to do it, but it's badass and dope and people love it. So I took my iPhone. I uh, took a photo of it and took several photos of it. I went home. I went on the government website as painful as it was to do it. I sat down. I, I happened not to screw it up too much. I paid my 30 bucks and I fill out the form and, I, and, I'm, and I'm done. So you're telling me if I do that, I have registered that illegal mural. It's formally and properly copywritten. And I've protected myself, having taken that step as part of my post-production process. That's right. And the reason that it's important to make it part of your process and not to just sort of let it go until, you know, let's say the end of the year or just to not procrastinate on it is that whether you get those enhanced damages and those enhanced rights really depends on the timing of when you register it. So if you create your work today and you register it tomorrow and then it's infringed the day after, then you're good. But if you create it now and then it's infringed before it's registered, then you might have a problem. And there's a little bit of a grace period there, not to complicate things too much, but the grace period basically says all of that stuff about, you know, whether the infringement or the registration came first, don't worry about that as long as you register your work within 90 days of making it. Okay. So that's why 90 days is, is really the important date. And that's why I said a month before, because I know that, you know, if you say 90 days, people are going to do it on the 89th day or the 90th day. So just think of it as within a month of making the work, your job is to register it. And you're right, it costs 35 bucks. Once you do one of them, all the later ones are going to fit in the same mold. You know, so if the first one takes you an hour to do, the next one is going to take you 10 minutes. The one after that is going to take you five minutes. And I do have a lot of clients who now just register all of their stuff. Um, they've gotten into the habit of it, you know, and it's, it's not that, you know, it's it, the painful part is doing it the first time and figuring right. out that process. Right. feels like there should be an app for this. <laughs> I think there should be apps for a lot of uh, sort of government bureaucratic functions, but they're they're barely at the point of, of having well, they're not uh, you even know, open website. right now. Oh no, they are open right now. They're, they're open, partially yeah. open, right? Yeah, they had uh, they had emergency funding for a while, but I guess now they're everything's open again. For yeah, for you know three weeks three until weeks, yeah. two and a half weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So well, that's really cool. And see, that's the kind of I think you know critical value added, career changing, uh, empowering information, right? That we want to share at the conference coming up on March sixteenth. Yeah, and and you know what? Let me put some numbers on it so that people can really. So so this isn't quite as abstract, right? These numbers are completely approximated, but they're in the ballpark of what I see on a daily basis and. I've had, you know, hundreds of these these types of, of you know, infringement cases at this point. Let, let's compare an artist who has not registered their work to someone who has registered their work, right? And let's say that your work is being used in an ad campaign for a clothing retailer. If you haven't registered your work and we go after that clothing retailer, well, you know, maybe we'll get you a couple thousand bucks, you know, maybe 5,000 in, in that ballpark. 
if you've registered your work, probably looking at more like 20,000, 30,000, I mean, real numbers. That's real money. Yeah, that's real money. Maybe more, you know, maybe more. It really is a huge, huge difference. And it, like you said, it costs 35 bucks and, you know, maybe an hour of someone's time to register. You know, so it really is a, it makes such a massive difference. You know, a lot of, a lot of copyright lawyers won't even take your case if you haven't registered the work because it's so uncertain what's going to happen. And the damages that are available to you are so limited that it might not be worth it for them to do it. Well, look, I might be crass here, but I kind of feel like it's a, it's a, some artists are going to hate me for saying this, but you know, I kind of feel like it's a lack of professionalism. I mean, if you're a professional artist, you know, and you are, approaching your work with the kind of discipline, rigor, seriousness, you know, you are being um, th- uh, thoughtful, strategic, you know, smart about, you know, your work and your career. And this just feels like one-on-one shit. Like, you know, but yet to your point, right, it's like, it's paperwork. You know, artists don't like paperwork. I mean, we nobody likes going on a government website, you know. I mean, it, I don't care who you are, right? It's a painful thing. I get a huge deterrent, right? But I, I don't know. I just feel like if, if and I'm not saying that the artist isn't talented. Like, you can have super talented artists that are way unprofessional. But I'm just saying, like, if you want to up your game as a professional artist, you know, these are just one of those steps that set you up for success. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I work with so many artists and usually, you know, the first time somebody comes to me, you know, one of the questions I'll ask them is, is their work registered? And I still haven't figured out the pattern of who the people are who register because there's some people who come to me and they're like, I've registered every single thing I've done since I was, you know, in college. And there's others who sometimes are much more well-known artists, right? People who you know sell work and who have gallery shows and who do a lot of commissions who don't have a single registration. And I haven't really figured out what the pattern is. I've actually gone into, you know, I was so curious about this. I went into the copyright database, which is free and publicly accessible online. And I've typed in names of, you know, famous artists just to see and there's a lot of them that just don't have any regist- registrations whatsoever. I haven't figured it out. So I don't, I completely agree with you. I don't blame artists for not doing it because I think nobody is really out there telling artists to do this. I think my understanding is that art in schools our, in certainly art school, aren't teaching not, them. No, they, right. My understanding is art schools don't even, don't even touch on this sort of thing. There's no, you know, water coolers for artists to, to meet around and, and, you know, say, hey, you know what, got any tips for me? That sort of thing, right? So I don't blame artists, but if there was a widespread shift in this one specific area, I think we would see a lot less infringement overall because there would be ripple effects. There would be, you know, there. It, it's like the, the reason an infringement happens is it's not accidental. It is an intentional manifestation of the power dynamic, the, the, the discrepancy in power between these large corporations and these individual artists. And the corporations know that, oh, you know, what is the artist going to do? They, you know, A, most artists don't have their shit together, so they haven't registered anything. B, what are they going to do? Hire a lawyer, go after us. And C, even if they do, you know, we'll, we'll deal with it then. You know, we'll deal with the repercussions then. And if artists started to take these proactive steps I think that would be a real deterrent for a lot of these companies. You know, if they started to face a lot more sophisticated pushback, you know, and and a sense of we're not going to take it anymore, I, I think 
this wouldn't happen as much, you know? And I think that the reality is we get a new, we get new cases, we get new referrals for artist infringement cases pretty much every single day of the year. I think people think of this as sort of an intermittent thing because they see it on their social media or they hear about it happening to their friends. This is an epidemic. This is happening to everybody and it's happening all the time. You know, so it is not an accident. It is not something that you sort of grow out of like, oh, you know, once I'm at a certain level, they'll stop copying me. No, it's never going to happen. You just have to do these things to protect yourself. Let me ask you this. And again, this probably falls in the category of like, you know, you know, true or false mythologies, what have you. But I think I remember somebody telling me that you can do a batch registration. So, so if I'm following a copyright, like I don't necessarily have to file a copyright, a hundred copyrights for a hundred pieces. I can file one copyright and have all those 100 pieces on that application. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it is, but there's so many caveats and so many asterisks and footnotes to that, that I will tell you this, I have almost never seen an artist do a batch application correctly in a way that did not invalidate the copyright. So I completely understand the impulse to, you know, I have 50 works, 50 times 35 is a lot of money. I'd rather just pay the 35. The problem is you have like a 90% chance of invalidating the entire registration. 90% chance. That's, that's high. You're, they're going to screw it up. If they do it through a lawyer, that chance comes down to... If they do it through me, that chance comes to close to zero. But if they do it on their own, it's almost 95% chance. And that's because you can only batch register works that fit specific criteria. They have to be published all in the same year. They have to have exactly the same authors or, you know, artists, creators. So if one of them was a collaborative work, you're out of luck. You know, that one has to go. If, you know, if you didn't publish them all in the same year, then you screw up the entire thing. If you don't organize them in a particular way, that's going to screw it up. It's not that it's impossible to do, but it's so risky that I definitely do not recommend it. I've had a lot of difficult conversations with uh, clients who are very sort of rigorous and, and conscientious about, you know, registering all of their stuff. And they come to me and they say, you know, I got infringed. I have registered everything. Here it is. And the registration is just not valid, you know, and, and it's not defensible. And I can see that just by looking at it. So I know that the other side is just going to, you know, rip it to shreds. And that can be a heartbreaking thing for people to hear that, you know, not only did they spend the money to do this thing and they thought they were protected, but they actually weren't. So, you know, I want to, you know, because I'm having a situation I wanted to talk to you about, you know, in terms of making this real, right? Because not real art is our name, you know, is our brand. And I want to protect it. Right. You know, I want to trademark it. I want to hire you to help me to do that. So, you know, what can we do to protect not real art as a, as a, as a brand, as a trademark uh, moving forward? Yeah. So let's talk about that. So we have been talking about copyright, right? Which is the area of, of IP that covers, you know, expressive works, right? Um, so paintings, drawings, sculptures, books, uh, music, film, right? Theater, all, all of that is, you know, that's expressive works. And that's, that's the world of copyright. 
The world of trademark is different. And I think a lot of people either kind of use those interchangeably or aren't exactly sure what the difference is. But trademarking is essentially protecting you, either your name or your logo or, you know, like a slogan, something that you use to sell products or services under, right? In the sort of legal parlance, it's referred to as an identif uh, identifier of source. So the idea is, you know, if you're going to put not real art on, on a t-shirt or on a tote bag, or if you're going to do a podcast or you're going to do a conference, those are all types of things that you can market and, you know, quote unquote, sell under, you know, under that name or under that mark. And so that's where trademark applies. You know, so if you want to register not real art for, you know, events, conferences, you know, professional events, things like that, you can do that. You know, another another misconception I think that that people have is that is that you can sort of trademark a name or a phrase and then you just own it, right? It's much more limited than that, right? Because when you're registering your trademark, you have to specify exactly the types of products or services that, you know, that you're going to market under that under that trademark. And other people can come in and, and use that same, you know, name or phrase as long as they're doing something completely unrelated, right? So, you know, if somebody wanted to, you know, let's say you register not real art for conferences, for events, for podcasts, maybe for other, you know, maybe for, uh, you know, web TV or, or other things that you intend to do, somebody could open a grocery store called Not Real Art. Not a great name for a grocery store. I wouldn't recommend it. I wouldn't it. shop there. No, no. I mean, I might go in there just to see what's up. I you would know? totally be intrigued. Yeah. But I don't think I'd, you know, buy bananas or something there. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't trust it there. Yeah. But, you know, they could do it, right? Because it is very different. There's no, there's no likelihood of confusion. The test for trademark infringement is likelihood of confusion. But if they started to kind of creep into your territory, things that are kind of closer or more related to the types of things that you had indicated in your trademark application that you're actually doing with the Not Real Art brand, then you'd be able to stop them. You'd be able to, you know, you'd essentially send them a cease and desist letter and say, hey, you know, I've already staked the claim here. I own this trademark for these specific products and services. The way you're using it is too confusing. You got to stop. So that's sort of what trademarks do for you. And they're, they're obviously very different from, from copyright. They're not going to be necessarily as relevant to, you know, let's say an artist just starting out. But if you're going to be doing products, let's say you have a specific character that you always draw, right? Or, or a logo. We have one specific example. We work with an artist that I think you know, A-Hole Sniffs Glue in, in Wynwood in Miami. Great guy. We've been working with him for years. He does his eyeball, right? The droopy eyeball. And that's sort of his signature symbol. Obviously, he does a lot. He's a great artist. He does a lot of different things, but he does a lot of different variations on that. That's an example of something that is both copyrighted and trademarked because it is a an expressive work that that he you know layers and and pastiches and and does all kinds of th things with and that that's the world of copyright but he also uses that one specific eyeball on a lot of different you know stickers and, and products yeah it is exactly people you know you see that and you know who is responsible for the thing that you're looking at. And that's exactly what trademark is supposed to be. You know, it's like the Nike swoosh, right? Is the classic example or the, or the Apple, or you have these famous logos. So that's an example of something that's both copyrightable and can be trademarked. And, and it in fact is registered in, in both ways. Right. 
So, well, that's super helpful. So you talked about registering not real art in different categories. In terms of uh, paying for trademarking not real art, do you pay per category? Yeah, unfortunately, you pay per category. And those fees go directly to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. So they charge per class of goods, which, you know, is what we're calling categories here. And those categories are incredibly antiquated, like 19th century antiquated in the sense of there's like 44 of them. And like there's one of them that includes like all of technology pretty much isn't just one of those categories. But there's like a whole category for like rubber goods or something like that, you know, like pre and like industrial age, shit, you know, where there'll be like different categories for like paint adhesive, like paint non-adhesive. Like it's from like a real kind of, you know, to quote a 90s term meat space world, right, where it's pretending that that like people still manufacture all these different things and they all have their own classes. But but yeah, so. That's actually one of the nice advantages, or, you know, one of the side effects of that classification is you pay by class. And because most things that people do, like modern people do, end up falling into one or two classes, it does limit the costs. But trademark is definitely way more expensive than copyright because the least that you can pay pretty much is about $275 per class. So if you're, you know, if you're in three classes, you're already looking at close to a thousand bucks for just, just filing fees alone. Yeah. I filed a couple of trademarks over the years and of course, prices change, things change, markets are different, what have you. I think I remember over the years paying anywhere from 2500 bucks to 5000 bucks for a trademark, you know, in LA, you know, so I don't know, you know, in terms of where that is, but yeah, I just I know that not real art, the name, the words, uh, people seem to love it, like it, laugh, makes, you know, it's yeah. it and you know, like let's face it, there's nothing proprietary about a conference, you know, there's nothing proprietary about a podcast necessarily, right? But not real art is our identity and we want to protect it. Right. Yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a good candidate for that because you're actually the other thing with trademark law is you have to actually use the you have to use the thing that you want to protect as a trademark. You can't just, you know, that has a specific meaning within trademark law, right? You can't just, for example, you can't just trademark your signature, for example. You know, like if you, you know, just because you put it on every canvas, that's not considered a trademark because you're not using that mark to entice people to sell things to them. It really has to be basically like a brand name or a logo. And you have to use it in particular ways. You know, you have to use it as a trademark. But yeah, not real art's a good good candidate for that. You know, it's funny, I was we recently exhibited at DesignerCon in Anaheim. Are you familiar with DesignerCon? Yeah. So we co-produced uh, DesignerCon with uh, Ben Gretzky in, uh, shout out Ben, in 2016 and 2017. We didn't uh, co-produce in 2018, but we had a booth there and Ben was nice enough to hook us up. So not real art, we had a not real art booth and it was the first, really the first public showing okay. of the brand, if you will. And so I have this big curved wall sort of pops up and it's just a white, you know, kind of background with the letters, you know, in black, not real art. And I purposely designed the the mark to be incredibly generic and bland. I mean, like it's purposely right. <laughs> utilitarian, right? And so I had this wall. I was shocked at how many people walked up and got selfies with right. this oh, generic yeah, I could see that. looking yeah. wall. Like it was just really funny to me because I was just like, 
like, you know, you just never know, right? Like what's going to motivate somebody. Yeah. I think that phrase really kind of fires off synapses for people. It's a good phrase. It's it's completely ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what I love about it because it reminds me of myself. Completely ridiculous. So, so thank you for that, man. I mean, you know, it's artists are prolific generators of intellectual property. And I remember being on a panel. I was years ago, we were hired by, I think it was Emerald Exhibitions. They produce uh, Surtex, the art licensing show here at Javits. And so they had, uh, had were, were trying to bring in, if you've ever been to the art licensing show, have you ever been to Surtex? I've, no, I've not uh, been okay, to that. Do you know, but you know, do you know what it is? Yeah. yeah okay. Well, yeah. anyway, so it's, then, you know, like, you know, it's like conventionally or historically, whatever, you know, these shows are very kind of middle America, you right. know what I mean? Lots of graphic design based patterns, right. you know, lots of rainbows and owls and unicorns, you know. And they wanted to bring in, you know, street art. And so they hired us to help them do that because they didn't know even where to begin. And uh, we brought graffiti into that show. And, you know, these artists that we brought, you know, these artists are incredibly prolific, right? They're always creating. So, so I was on this panel and uh, this graphic designer asked me, what if they steal my idea? You know, uh, what do I do to protect myself? You know? And I, you know, I was perhaps a little bit simplistic and crass at the time, but I, I basically said, so what, you know, so what if they steal your idea? You know, like, like literally you're an artist, you know, you're going to have 50 more ideas by the end of the, by the end of the night before you go to bed and they're stealing your idea because they uh, can't think of one of their own. You know, it kind of comes with the territory. Now, I wasn't, I, you know, I said you should always take your steps, you know, necessary steps, protect yourself, so on and so forth. Every situation is different, but you know, the, re the reason I'm bringing this up is because artists are always creating intellectual property. Right. And so, you know, one of the things that the reason we're doing the conference, we're, you know, I want to try to help artists, encourage artists to think differently about the work that they do and, and, and the lie in the career that, you know, that they have, because I would argue that an artist is in the intellectual property business. Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And I think that unfortunately for all, all kinds of reasons, maybe a lot of artists out there, perhaps younger artists, you know, they, they think very specific, like, you know, I'm an artist, I make art, I'm on the canvas, it's a product, this is what it is. When in fact, you know, if, if you are trying to make a living, if you're trying to monetize your work, and you're trying to enhance your income and you want to work smart. And by the way, dare I say, try to figure out a way to make money while you sleep. Right. You know, you have to think of your art as intellectual property and you need to look for those opportunities to monetize that IP beyond the canvas. And so, you know, these things that we're talking about, copyright, trademark, what have you, like all these things are sort of essential to begin to set yourself up to license the rights and monetize the rights, right, to your art, to your intellectual property. And earlier you were saying, talking about having, making this part of their process. You know, one of the things that I have told artists that I would like for them to make a part of their process is you finish a canvas and you, one way or another, pay for or acquire a museum quality, high res digital image of that work, right? Because, you know, years ago when we were helping artists, you know, license their work, because, you know, there was a time in our company's background where we were doing some art licensing. One of the major problems was that 
most artists did not have high resolution museum quality photographs of their work. And, you know, you can't license a shitty image, you know? So anyway, so I just think, you know, the work you do is so important. You know, I, you, know we're, you and I are both, you know, uh, advocates. You know, I think the phrase is art advocate, but I'm an artist advocate. Right. You know, I oh, re- yeah, no, 100%. You know, I think everything you said, I think, is is just axiomatically true. I mean, because if you think about it, if you're an artist today, that's great. But ideally, you have to think about, do you still want to be an artist in 10 years? Do you want to be an artist in 20 years, right? Or is it just something that you're kind of half committing to now? Because if you want to keep doing it in 10 years, then you have to make money from it. That's the reality. Otherwise, you will have some other job that you do. And then you will occasionally, when you still have the energy and the time, you will create some art, right? So if you want to be a working artist, you you want art to be the thing that you do, then you have to figure out how to make money from it. That is just, it's just axiomatically true because we can't live in this society without money, right? we have to pay rent and we have to pay bills and we have to eat. And, you know, at some point, you know, even if an artist young, they might want to have a family and there's all kinds of expenses, right? There's, uh, there's healthcare, there's everything. Well, and, and so, and this of course opens up such a bigger conversation as well. And you and I've chatted about it a little bit about this, you know, over the phone a couple of times, but uh, and we mentioned Winwood earlier. You know, I was at Art Basel early uh, in December, and I was, you know, in Winwood and walking around. And obviously, it's amazing in terms of the prolific, you know, work down there. But you know, quite frankly, I just left angry in part because I'm willing to guess nine out of ten of those murals were done for free. Yeah, and you know, and I look, the artists reserve the right to give their work away and give their time away and do free work if they think that's worth the risk or worth the investment or what have you. And so I don't know, just everything that we're trying to do, everything, I think my whole you know ethos over the years has been to try to empower and encourage artists to, to be smarter about their business and be smarter about the business they're in and the fact, the value they create and the intellectual property that they create and what's that worth. And, you know, it's funny, I um, was talking to this artist one time and, you know, I, you know these are complicated issues. Sure. I don't, you know, oh, I'm yeah. not trying to oversimplify, but I was talking to this artist one time and I was just trying to make it super easy for them. And I, you know, I was like, what do you, what do you want to make? You know, like for, in terms of a salary and what do you think sounds like a lot of money, you know, or what, what would you need to be comfortable? Oh, it'd be phenomenal if, if I made $150,000 a year. Sure. Okay. Let's do the math. You know, right. how many hours a week do you want to work? You know, how many weeks in the year? Yeah, okay. you can just do the, just go backwards. Just right? go backwards. From, yeah. Then get it. You'll have a number. How much you should be charging for an hour of your time. Right. You know, let's start there. You know, just these simple models that, you know, it is always hard to negotiate if you're not a good negotiator. And, you know, when, when capital has the capital, right. you know, the golden rule, the person with the goals make the rules, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes to really, you know, stand up for what you're worth. But this is why we're doing conferences. This is why we're doing the podcast to try to start a different conversation and empower people with knowledge and confidence. Yeah, absolutely. I think this stuff is is incredibly complicated and none of this is by accident, right? Like the system is set up in a way to disempower artists, to put them at a disadvantage when it comes to negotiation, when it comes to enforcing their rights and knowing what they're worth. You know, people shouldn't think that, you know, there's some inherent flaw in their personality or in their abilities or in their, you know, 
that, that they just lack some skill. I think you need to understand that this happens to everybody and, and it's by design. And it is one of the challenges that you will face as an artist is dealing with the reality that, look, in every negotiation, it doesn't matter who you are. I mean, I've represented large companies in negotiations. The other side always wants to pay as little as possible. That is just the fundamental principle of negotiation. You try to either get as much as you can or pay as little as you have to. But there are various power dynamics that come into play that can sort of move the needle on that, right? So whether it's, you know, your leverage in terms of, you know, if you're selling out shows, obviously you're going to be able to probably command a higher premium. Or if, but, but also if you show that you have your shit together, if you are sophisticated, if you show that you've been through this process before, that you know what to say or you know what they're going to say, they will respect you, you know, and, and because you're playing that game that they have set up for you to play. That is, I think that's, you know, if you want to sell your work and you want to be a working artist, that's one of the things that you have to do. I kind of think of it as there's a few dimensions, right? So you can be, you know, anyone who makes art can be an artist. But if you want to be a working artist, to me, that's a whole different thing. And I think of it as there's three dimensions, right? There's the creative. You have to create the work. You have to. But that's the part that comes easiest to people, right? The, the people who want to be artists are already have that just in their DNA, the second thing is you have to be an entrepreneur, right? And and I don't mean that in the like annoying kind of Silicon Valley way, right? But you have to be a business person. You have to understand that anytime a transfer of money comes into play, that is business. It is not a dirty word to the extent that you need money to live, right? I mean, if you're, look, if you have a trust fund and you don't need money, then by all means, God you know, bless you. Yeah, exactly. But that's not 99.9% .9 of people and certainly not 99.9% .9 of creative people. And you have to embrace that aspect of being a working artist, which is sort of the business, the business side of it. And, and you have to learn the industries that you work in. You have to be willing to stand up for yourself. You have to find the people that are going to support you, whether that is, you know, a gallerist or a manager or a lawyer or an accountant or an advisor, whoever it is. I'm not saying go and blow your entire, you know, monthly budget on, on, uh, you know, on advice and service, but you need to surround yourself with people who are going to reinforce your identity as a serious, you know, a serious person in, in this in this field, somebody to be taken seriously. And I think there's this sort of third dimension that I think rarely enters the equation for people, which is you kind of have to be an activist. You, because a lot of what we're talking about can't be done on your own. You don't exist in a vacuum, right? And there are repercussions to what you do and there, you know, and there are things you can learn from what other people do. And I think you have to take, you know, activists can mean a lot of different things. I don't necessarily mean like get involved in, in politics or anything like that. What I mean is understand, you know, try to learn and understand what are the different dynamics at play in the industry that you work in, how things work, you know, which factors work against you and how you can deal with them. And also what, what are the implications of your own actions? So I, I wanted to, you know, you mentioned, you know, you went to Winwood, you got angry, that all of these artists are working for exposure, right? Exposure bucks. Exp right. When an artist 
you know, and you said, you know, people can give away their work for free, but I think when they do that, they should think about what that does to other artists, right? hundred percent. Again, you don't, you're not the only person, you know, this is not, you know, you can't live this sort of solipsistic existence where, you know, whatever you do doesn't affect other people. If you give away your work, why would other people pay other artists? Because they know that there's somebody out there that they can get it from it for free. It devalues everybody's work. Not just yours, right. It devalues other artists' work and it keeps this these really entrenched power dynamics you know, and disparities as entrenched as they are. You know, and I think there absolutely is, you know, and that's why I differentiate the activist angle from the business angle, because when you're talking about the business angle, by all means, just think about yourself. Think about your career, think about your family, think about paying your bills. But there has to be this other activist angle to it, because, you know, otherwise, like, we're not much better than, you know, finance people or or, or others who, you know, people who like destroy the earth for profit, right? Like, there has to be something, there has to be some level of awareness or sort of like, you know, some moral component to this, at least some awareness of like how you fit into this and how your actions affect other people. And also how you can, you know, you can learn from other people and that, that have been through this process and, and not seeing everybody as just a competitor, right? Like, it's not like there's, you know, there's these 10 other artists and if one of them gets a gig, then that means I'm not getting one. So I shouldn't, talk to them or I shouldn't build them up or I shouldn't help them in their career. That, you know, that's, it really, you know, help. you're hundred percent right. And you're touching on something that just frustrates the hell out of me because, you know, we hear these uh, axioms, you know, about, you know, takes a village and this, that, and the other, I mean, in unified front and solidarity and I, like artists must lock arms and stand together and be that unified front because it really is, I think, um, and this is, I guess, my activist mind getting it, it really is us against them. Capital, this is a very cynical view, but in my view, like capital, you know, is is about as creative as a paper bag. Like they cannot, you know, they're very good at making money, <laughs> right? You know, but they can't do it without artists. No, of course. And, and you know, you because creativity is risky and they're not in the business of taking risks. That's right. You know, so it's a symbiotic relationship. But to your, to your point, the power structure, like, you know, like the artists have allowed themselves to be exploited. And, you know, the capitalists, you know, sort of, you know, can make the rules because they've got the gold. But it's only going to begin to shift, right? I mean, it's, again, a very complicated problem and it's going to take years and perhaps decades but or more. But, you know, it, it's never going to work if artists don't It's at least start looking out for one another. Right. Yeah. I mean, nobody is going to fix this problem, but everyone can take tiny little steps towards that, right? And I think there's a lot of value, especially in a current sort of political and social climate where people feel completely disempowered, they feel alienated, you know, they feel like that they're completely disconnected from anything that's happening because everything that's happening seems crazy. I think there is a lot of power to taking actual small steps towards progress, not just making yourself feel a little bit better, right? Which I think is the instinct that a lot of us have. Like, oh, you know, let me change the channel and, and try to find, you know, the the kitten being, you know, uh, rescued from the tree because that'll make me feel better, right? No, I mean, how you feel is, is important for your self-care, but it's not really going to change these very real problems that exist. And I think that connecting, integrating into, you know, really sort of understanding, you know, what this community is or what, you know, what, what your industry is or how you fit into all these different things and really kind of looking at them from a perspective that is a little bit wider than just your, 
individual day-to-day perspective can actually make tiny but concrete, you know, progress. An elephant one bite at a time. And, you know, what are the other organizations beyond yours? You know, there's Americans for the Arts. There's, you know, I don't know. uh, Fractured Atlas. Fractured Atlas. Mm -hmm. There's, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, Wage, I guess, is a new one. There's a Freelancers Union. I mean, talk about some of the organizations out there that you're aware of that you find that are credible and are, you know, doing good work that artists can tap into to get some of this, some of this advice, some of these best practices. I think there aren't a huge number. I mean, I'm familiar with some, you know, maybe maybe it's a case that I'm not not familiar with some of the better ones, or maybe I'm I'm sort of living in this New York bubble and, and the best ones are outside of New York. But, you know, some of the ones that I'm aware of that have actually helped people, you know, there are guilds and the trade unions, obviously, but there's, um, you know, Freelancers Union is one that you mentioned. I've worked with them and they actually got a really really, really significant law passed here in uh, in New York City in 2017 that helps not just artists, but any freelancers that have problems getting paid by, by clients. They've made it so much easier to deal with non-payment issues if you're a freelancer. And artists are freelancers. Uh, yeah, artists that yeah, absolutely, you know, artists that work through. So, so the freelancers law, the, it's called the Freelance Isn't Free Act. I recommend that people Google it again. Freelance Isn't Free Act, which is shortened to FIFA, unfortunately. But I guess you know, not real art shortens to NRA. So people, people uh, have mentioned that. Yes, <laughs> right. So anyway, so this FIFA Act which has nothing to do with soccer. It's only in New York right now. They're looking at maybe pushing it into New Jersey, and and there's a lot of you know, it's it's a sort of a municipal citywide law. So every, you know, every legislature is going to have to take it up on their own. Freelancers Union does have presence across the country. It's just that half of their membership is here in New York. If you do any sort of work on a freelance basis and you're just doing it on your own, uh, not through a company, like if you have if you have a company with multiple people in it, then the Freelance Act isn't going to help you there. But if you do work on your own, which is, you know, again, 90 some percent of, of artists and you have a problem getting paid by a client, absolutely talk to a lawyer, talk to me, talk to somebody, because there's now much easier ways to, to get paid. And you can, uh, you can get paid multiples of, of what you're owed. So it is, it is a huge, huge tool for, for artists. Unfortunately, like I said, only in New York City for now. Yeah, well, and it, it feels like there's a lot of energy around some of these issues because they're contemporary issues. They're new issues, right? So, you know, people are going to organize and deal with them. But it's great that, that people are making efforts. But yeah, it's a big problem. So it's going to take a lot of people, right? It's going to take a lot of people. It's going to take a lot of ideas. It's going to take a lot of effort. And the thing is that it is absolutely the right thing to do. You know, so there are failed attempts and, you know, you hear about some organization that, you know, went under, but they were doing good work. Then, you know, those, that work has to continue somewhere. You know, these problems will not 30 million individuals working on their own are not going to unfortunately solve the sort of macro problems. They might solve the micro problems as they affect them, but but we need these organizations and, you know, people should be thinking, you know, a lot I think about, you know, what are the resources, you know, if you're a working artist, you should be thinking about what do I wish existed, right? Realistic. Like what 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 do I need? What what kind of support do I need? Do I need sort of moral support? Do I just need people around that are going through the same types of issues and I can talk to them? Do I actually need to, you know, do I need somebody who can, who understands how insurance works and can explain that to me? You know, if you're up in a scaffold, you know, and something happens and, I, and I've, I've had these cases happen, like, 
you're going to wish that you understood how insurance works, not just your own health insurance, but your general commercial liability insurance. Yeah, GoFundMe page isn't going to cover your medical bills. Right, exactly. There's so many things, like you said, that art school doesn't teach. And, you know, I urge people to really think about, you know, what are the things that they need help with? And, you know, and start having those conversations and see if other people, if other artists, you know, other people, you know, are having the same types of issues because, you know, that's where ideas can start from. Right. I mean, I think it's hard to even know exactly beyond sort of tending to people's sort of basic material needs, which obviously is what people need. I think it's hard even for for others to know, for, you know, these unions or other organizations to know what are the actual, you know, difficulties that people are having and, and what do they need help with? For sure. For sure. Well, you know, we're trying to do what we can with the conference, right? right? Um, trying to create a water cooler moment for artists and professionals like yourself and experts, subject matter experts to come together and share, learn and grow. Right. And uh, I'm thrilled, man, that uh, we were able to sit down and, and talk today a little bit. I'm thrilled and grateful you're coming out uh, for the conference. Are you looking forward to it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't been to LA in a couple of years. I, you know, I'm, I'm well, very much do, looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, I used to go every year, come. but yeah, it's absolutely. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. You know, I, I work with a couple of the artists, artists that are speaking and I'm looking forward to seeing everybody. And it looks like a a really cool roster. And I think, I think the topics that you've chosen are from my experience are, are exactly the types of things that people ask me about. So I think, I think it's great. Well, thanks. Yeah. It's going to be an exciting day. We're, we're super stoked. Uh, a lot of work to do between here and there uh, in terms of uh, selling t- tickets and making sure all the right people know about it. So for all of our listeners, uh, please go to notrealart.com and check out the uh, click on the conference link and check out the programming and buy a ticket. Early bird pricing is, is happening while supplies last. So tickets are a hundred bucks, which I think, uh, you know, it was funny. Somebody yelled at me the other day and said, which should be free. <laughs> Right. Right. That is so indicative of so many things that we were talking about. Right. Today, even. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I work with a lot of artists, like I said, and a lot of creative professionals and such. And my view on things is when I go to see one of their events or something, I never ask to be comp because I want to support them, you know, because, uh, you know, they support me and I want to support them. And I feel like that's the way to do it. Well, you know, and you and I talked about this. I mean, we are giving you an honorarium for coming to speak, but that is not the same amount that we're paying artists. We, the artists that are speaking at our conference are being paid a fair market rate for giving a keynote presentation at a conference. They're an expert in their field. I did the research. I, you know, and so for, for anybody to say that tickets should be free, that also implies that the speakers should work for free. These artists should work for free. It's this insidious cycle of insanity that people, that artists shouldn't get paid for their work or that people should be working for free, that I'm, that, that I'm doing, they're doing me the favor or, right. you know, I don't know. I, my goal with the conference, right, is to provide, and this is a goal for me and many things I do in my life is like, yeah, I try to under promise over deliver. <laughs> I try to provide, I want people to feel like they got more than what they paid for. Right. And I want people walking away feeling like, you know, that they that they they are empowered and inspired and informed as a result of, you know, being there that day on March 16th. A hundred percent. 
I think I'm not impartial here, <laughs> but I, you know, I think that people should absolutely invest in their own professional development and in community building. You know, I, those are the sort of the building blocks of of this whole of this whole thing. Well, you know, somebody texted me the other day, or I guess it was uh, Instagram. They they asked me when we're going to be doing this in uh, New York. And I said, well, I said, uh, let's talk to Ilya and see see what's going on. And maybe we'll do one next year. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, because we've got to spread the love. It's right. a big problem, big country. we got to do it, you know, East Coast, West Coast. Absolutely. And I think there's a big audience in New York for, for that sort of thing as well. My friend, tell our listeners where they can find you. Tell our listeners, uh, give them their, their, your phone number, so, you know, because <laughs> I mean, a lot of our listeners are going to want your services. So we are at KG Firm, so KGFIRM.com. All of our contact info is on there. Uh, you can email, you can call. And yeah, I mean, you know, if, if any artists are out there and, and something I've said has sparked uh, any kind of thought like, oh, you know, yeah, I, I've been meaning to deal with this, you know, or, oh, yeah, I have this stack of work that, that's not registered, you know, that's, you know, call us or email us. You know, I'm noticing, my friend, that uh, the photo we have of you on our uh, flyer and on our website and stuff, uh, you look like, like a very nice young man in this photo. Was this taken right out of uh, wet behind the ears right out of law school? When, when, when we... Actually, you know what? No, that's funny. That was taken about five or six years ago. Yes. This job really has aged me, I think. Well, I was saying, no, you, but you have the five <laughs> o'clock shadow. You've got the, the, the beard uh, today is a good look for you. You've yeah, got the so... rugged, rugged look Happening. I was also wearing a suit that I could not fit into today. <laughs> well, do you have the rights to that artwork in the background? We do, because... absolutely. <laughs> Practice what you preach, preach my friend. All right, uh, Ilya, thank yep. you so much, my friend. Of this has been great. I'm so grateful. And for all of our listeners, be sure to check us out at notrealart.com. Pick up your tickets today. Follow us on Instagram at notrealartofficial. And we'll see you on March 16th. Thanks.